This is an ABC podcast. The eyes of the world have been on Qatar during the FIFA Football World Cup. And with all the attention has come a fair deal of criticism, especially about Qatar's human rights record. On today's roundtable, we're going to meet three people who've lived and worked in Qatar in very different situations. An Australian journalist, an American academic and a Qatari local. Mubarak Altani is a 32-year-old Qatari artist who also works for the Education Above All Foundation, an NGO founded by Her Highness Sheikh Hamoza bin Nasser. Mubarak's also lived and worked in New York, but is currently based in Doha. Nicole Johnson is an Australian journalist who spent a decade living in Doha and working as a correspondent for Al Jazeera, the news organisation which has been such a major part of Qatar's international identity and its cultural power in the Middle East and beyond. Craig LeMay is Director of the Journalism and Strategic Communications Program at Northwestern University in Qatar. He recently wrote the essay in Foreign Policy magazine, How Qatar Can Save Its World Cup Legacy. Due to the tricky time zones, which have seen Aussie football fans staying up or getting up at all hours, this roundtable is more of a round robin, so we'll hear first from Mbarak Altani. Mbarak is in Doha, and I spoke to him earlier and welcomed him to the roundtable. Thank you. Thank you very much, Julian. Thank you for having me. Mbarak, you were 20 when Qatar won the right to host the 2022 World Cup. What's your perspective on how Qatar has changed over those 12 years and the impact that being a host nation has had on your country? Um, yes, great maths. I was <laughs> 20, actually. It was very surreal the moment it happened. I remember it being like a whole festive week and everyone was celebrating. But we knew, I think we knew we had, not to say a difficult road ahead, but we knew we had to start working right away. So in terms of what have been done, what has changed, I think, obviously, uh, the country has developed tremendously. Uh, and also in various fields and sectors, such as tourism. I think when we got the right to host it, we had just a few hotels. And now I think there's a staggering number of hotels of 200 plus. The city has uh, grown and even in other cities that don't even necessarily host you know, uh, activities relating to the World Cup. From a, a more non-tangible perspective, culturally, I think, it was always an open country to others. Uh, ever since I was born, I remember there was not a single year in my school and classroom where Qataris were a majority. It always has been a, a very mixed, very diverse, very international community. But I think what happened with the World Cup is that it not only allowed the world to know us, but also it has put us in direct contact with a lot of different cultures and allowed for a lot of exchange. And what's it been like in Qatar and Doha in particular since the tournament began on the 20th of November? I mean, it's spectacular, really. I, I, I've seen, you know, restaurants that are full and Mexicans that have been celebrating and shouting in restaurants and Argentinians arguing with Saudis, but in a, in a nice manner, you know. <laughs> it's just been so busy, so festive. And to see people wear the ghitra, the you know, the shawl that we put on our heads, 
you know, a lot of people on the streets ask me, is this correct? Am I being offensive? And I think our culture is like the least culture to get offended. So I like, no, um, you know, we, we really appreciate that you're trying to wear. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. There is no offense in that. But uh, also that's something we didn't really expect. But people coming here would, would embrace our culture so much. And so that makes us happy. On the roundtable, we're speaking with Qatari artist and NGO worker Mbarak Altani. Mbarak, what's the reaction been like within Qatar to criticisms of your country, particularly in the international media during the World Cup? Um, I think it was a given because it's not something that came out of left field. However, the intensity of it has been a bit uh, disheartening to an extent as countries, we all have things that we can improve. It has to be a sort of two-way conversation because I feel like what happened with Qatar was a one-way criticism. We have things to improve, obviously, but it's difficult to entertain a discussion that is coming from a particular angle and is very timely strategically. And if I can be more honest with you, the problem I think is... Part of it comes from the fact that it's coming from a particular area, that is Europe. And Europe, to most of the world, has a history of things that went wrong based on their policies and their approaches. We're just talking a few decades ago, we're not talking centuries ago, even though some of them go back centuries. So it's a bit lacking in self-awareness. We're having the imperial mindset. I'm talking from a local perspective, having this imperial mindset coming and telling us what to do, what not to do. And uh, the issue is our culture really praises public space. It's a co-shared space, but it's not a community-owned space. And so when you bring in ideologies into that space, the thing, the problem is you open the door for countering ideologies. So if you're bringing these, you know, Western progressive movements inside, which I don't think a lot of people are against, but it becomes extremely political so fast. And so when you bring in, uh, when you champion Western style ideologies here, it, it kind of creates a backlash that is not even necessary because we are moving in the right place. Just let it play. Let the pace play. You know what I mean? Um, unlike in the West, where if you come back with a countering arguments, you might get cancelled. We don't have a cancel culture here. So if you impose things like that and things that radically push, relatively speaking, radically push uh, ideologies, then you might get a backlash and set things backwards 20, 30 years. And Barak, obviously, as an artist, being able to express yourself is very important to you. What are the limits on the way you can express yourself that come with living and working in Qatar? And how do you deal with them? I don't think I have had any issues with my content, even though my content is kind of, you know, pushing the, the limits and the, and the envelope. Um, I love cityscapes, landscapes, and, and city skylines, and uh, also the, the things that happen within cities, like interaction, exchanges, people, movement, energy. And when I discuss some elements of the city, you have to talk about the struggles of, of others. And so 
there were some things I've expressed. Uh, and, you know, these paintings have been very well received and they have been shown publicly in galleries. So I, I don't think I've had any any problem at all. You said earlier that, as with all countries, there are things that you'd like to see improve in your country. What is on that list of things you'd like to see change in Qatar? Because it's a, it's a very fastly growing city, I think we need to look at ways to have uh, infrastructure connect communities. Because, you know, when you grow so fast, what happens with cities is that they become, some parts of the cities become silos. And so you have to connect them with public transport, you have to integrate them. Uh, and then also because we're a very young country with no taxes, we have to kind of look at equity from a different angle, I feel. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a secret. We, we have a large immigrant population. A part of that are migrant workers and Qatar, it's expensive. It's really expensive to live here. So maybe just equities for these people, I, I feel, would be a good approach to improve things. Umbarak Althani, thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us on The Roundtable. Thank you, Julian. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was Mbarak Altani, the 32-year-old Qatari artist and NGO worker, speaking to us from Doha. On the roundtable now, we're going to speak with Nicole Johnson, who's currently in Australia and files reports on this nation for Sky News UK. But before that, Nicole spent a decade living in Doha and working for Al Jazeera. Nicole Johnson, welcome to the roundtable. Thank you. Good to be here. It's great to have you. Al Jazeera, as a media experiment, has had a profound effect, and I think it's been a profound success as well. Could you give us a sense of just what the the scale of the Al Jazeera network is in terms of its reach and how Al Jazeera English slotted into that? Well, certainly in the early days of Jazeera, it seemed as though there was no limit and no limits to the money either when it came to what they'd spend on deployments and sending people all over the world. You felt as though you could almost pitch anything. You know, if you wanted to do a story about Iraqi oil contracts, go for it. Or codification of Islamic law in, in Morocco, they were up for it. So it, w- it was just an amazing opportunity to do stories. And the appetite was incredible as well. I spent a year, for example, living in Gaza. The interest in Gaza for international media, it comes and goes. You know, it's, it's usually big whenever there's a war. But it's somewhere like Jazeera, you could send them a story every single day from Gaza and they'd take it and they'd run it every hour for 24 hours. So that was a real luxury as a reporter. I suppose that speaks to a couple of things. One, obviously, is the vast wealth uh, of the Qatari state and the fact that that was funnelled into Al Jazeera. Was there a sense that the mission of Al Jazeera as a broadcaster was to promote and improve the image of Qatar or was that not something that was in your mind or in the, in, in the air in the organisation, if you like? I don't think it was in our minds in the early days. Uh, there were certain stories that were difficult to report in Doha in the early days, anything related to, to labour rights. I mean, I did end up 
doing some of those stories, but you had to do them carefully. That's interesting. When you talked about the, the free reign of subjects that you had, I, I rather assumed that there were some subjects that were off limits at, at Al Jazeera, but from what you're saying, that wasn't the case. Oh, there were subjects off limits. I mean, uh, what I would say is in the, in the latter days of Jazeera, as the region became more complicated, as Qatar became more involved in all sorts of regional conflicts, you know, we had the Arab Spring, we had uh, the Egyptian Revolution, then the Egyptian coup and the collapse of the Morsi government. Qatar had a big role to play in all of these. So there was, more so with the Arabic channel than the English channel, you know, there was a particular line for sure. What's interesting, though, I suppose, about Al Jazeera English, and that's the only uh, form of Al Jazeera that I've experienced, but at least today, their, their international coverage is impeccable. And in a way, that sort of journalistic culture seems so strikingly at odds with the government of Qatar. How were those things reconciled? And, and why is it that a free media organisation was able to grow and blossom in such an illiberal context? In some ways, I don't think it is at odds with the government and what the government was trying to do, because as I said, it was all about soft power for Mm. them. You know, Al Jazeera Arabic and then later English gave them standing initially in the region and at different points, depending on, you know, what the big international story of the day was internationally as well. I mean, it was the go-to channel at various points, especially during the Arab Spring. Mm. As a country, it was this sort of plucky, scrappy country initially. It had the wealth, but the wealth came more so a few years after I arrived when they really started tapping into their uh, natural gas reserves. Uh, Mm. Just for people who don't know, I mean, Qatar at the time, and I think it may still be the case, has the world's largest non-associated gas reserve pure gas, not as a byproduct of oil, and it has just been a cash cow mm. for Qatar on an incredible scale. And this is a tiny, weenie country with only you know, 300,000 people or so, plus all of the expatriate workers and migrant workers. So it's a tiny population to spread all of that wealth around. But Qatar is positioned between these you know, big, powerful countries, Iran, Saudi Arabia, so it had to find a way to punch above its weight, to find its own sort of path in this tough neighbourhood. And it did that through Jazeera, through all sort of other humanitarian organisations, through buying up property in the UK, for example, through mm. you know, buying sports teams and now hosting the World Cup. On RN, we're speaking with Nicole Johnston, who spent a decade living in Doha and working for Al Jazeera. Nicole, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the culture of Qatar. How did you find that you were treated as a foreign woman living in Qatar outside uh, the Al Jazeera workplace? I never had any issues or any problems, and I never actually had any issues anywhere in the Middle East, to be honest. Well, that's great to Um, hear. I did know Qataris. I actually, when I first arrived at Jazeera, one of the things everybody did was get a membership at one of the hotels so that on the weekend you could go to the pool and relax, etc. There were a lot of Qataris there, so I met 
you know, a, a lot of the Qatari guys, and they were all, you know, very welcoming and lovely. And the interesting thing was, especially in light of the debate in, in Qatar about homosexuality and, and gay rights, etc., a lot of the ones that I ended up meeting were gay. And they were married and they were living sort of a second life, really. That's how they did it. So it was a pretty fascinating insight yeah. also into that side of life in Qatar. I guess you could was call that it something the that they discussed with you? So it was something that, that was out amongst friends, if you like? Yes. Not initially. Well, once you knew them and you were friends and, you know, there, there were sort of parties and it was quite obvious. Hmm. Really fascinating. What about the dynamic more broadly between the very large amount of expats then the Qatar locals, but also then the migrant worker population, which is, as we've discussed already, is sort of notorious for being exploited and facing very harsh labour conditions. Yeah, it's, it's pretty confronting. Obviously, most expatriates are there on a very comfortable tax-free salary with their accommodation paid for. You didn't have any bills. You had a lot of holiday leave. And for a lot of people, it became the golden handcuffs. It was hard for people to leave that environment and go back to the real world where you have to pay tax and you don't have the same disposable income. So many people are still there and will probably stay for another 10 or 15 years because to leave all of that is a financial blow, of course. Mm. Now, for the Qataris, it's on another level again. There are massive allowances for Qataris. So when they get married, when they have kids... There are house packages, land packages, great resources for education, etc. It's this whole rentier economy theory. You know, you buy the political acquiescence of the population. Everything that they could ever want is given to them, really. And in return, there's no demand or real demand for democracy or for, you know, free and fair elections. And most Qataris I met were highly supportive of the royal family, and as long as they were maintaining their standard of living and getting what they wanted and living their best lives, then they were happy with the status quo. The other factor, of course, as you said, is the migrant workers. It's confronting. After 10 years of, of seeing that every day, it's, it's pretty rough. So I can't even imagine how it is for those guys living it, you know, working in those incredibly hot conditions. Mm. It's, yeah, it's pretty tough. Well, it's been fascinating hearing your insights about Qatar and Al Jazeera. Nicole Johnston, thank you so much for speaking with us on RN. My pleasure. On the roundtable today, focusing on Qatar, we've heard from a Qatari local, Mbarak Altani, and that was, of course, Nicole Johnson, former Al Jazeera correspondent. Now for a different perspective on journalism and education in Qatar, we're joined by Craig LeMay. Craig is Director of the Journalism and Strategic Communications Program at Northwestern University in Qatar, and he recently wrote an essay in Foreign Policy magazine called How Qatar Can Save Its World Cup Legacy. Craig LeMay, welcome to the Roundtable. Thank you very much. When did you start teaching in Qatar, Craig? Uh, I first taught there in 2013, and I've been there continuously since 2016. What subjects do you teach there? And does the fact that you're teaching those subjects in Qatar change the substance of what you teach compared to when you're working in America? Uh, yes. I, my primary course has always been communications law, 
I've taught it around the world, but obviously when I'm in Chicago, I focus on American law. Mm. When in Qatar, I'm faced with students from 51 different countries, from Albania to Zimbabwe. So there's a whole range of media law considerations to think about. And then there's Qatari law, the one we all live with every day. Qatari law dates to the British protectorate period, and it is draconian. Has Qatari law changed much? Has there been much progress during the time that you've been working and living in Qatar? Well, in terms of the plain language of the law, no. In fact, it's gotten worse. Uh, The media law dates to its last revision was 1979. And since, and just in the last several years, including the time I've been there, uh, there's been an addition to the penal code. It is a a false news law, uh, which, like most false news laws, is written broadly and vaguely. And also the addition of a cybercrime law which doubles down on many of the penalties already in the penal code for things like libel and invasion of privacy and makes both the uh, civil offenses and the criminal penalties worse. We'll come back to what it's like on the ground for local journalists in Qatar, but in terms of the academic environment as a teacher, Mm -hmm. are those things you've talked about with us things that you can openly discuss and criticise in a Qatari classroom? Yes, I do. I talk about them all the time. Many of my students know this firsthand. So if they want to go out, leave the environs of Education City, which is kind of a protected space, if they want to go to report, uh, they face these problems almost immediately. They're stopped by security guards everywhere and asked for proof of identification or to stop filming. They actually carry a note with them from me uh, explaining who they are and what they're doing. Uh, and that buys them almost nothing, including often even w- within Education City. So they know this firsthand, and so I talk about with them. And again, if you come from a country like Rwanda or uh, Brazil, you come from a country with its own history of press restriction. It's also very striking that Qatar's ranking on the World Press Freedom Index was Mm-hmm. 74 in 2008, but now they rank 119 out of 180 mm-hmm. countries. What has driven that fall, which you rightly describe as precipitous? Well, a most dramatic fall came in 2016 when uh, the country shut down the one, we'll call it independent news outlet. It's called the Doha News. And it was shut down ostensibly for coverage of LGBTQ issues. It also included some you know, criticism of the government. Both of those things are, by the letter of the law, illegal. In any event, it shut it down ostensibly for not having a license. You cannot be a publisher in Qatar without a license. In order to get a license, you must be a Qatari of a certain age. And so when it closed that paper down in 2016, Qatar dropped, I think it was almost 50 spots in the Press Freedom Index. On the roundtable, we're speaking with Craig LeMay, Director of the Journalism and Strategic Communications Program at Northwestern University in Qatar. Uh, Craig, how would you explain what seems quite anomalous, the fact that there is an environment of academic freedom in Education mm-hmm. City and there's a, 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 an externally projected rhetoric of being progressive on free expression? How do those contradictions subsist or exist in Qatar and how are they rationalised by the Qatari authorities? Well, the first thing I would say, this is not a situation unique to Qatar. So I worked in places like Bosnia, Guatemala, uh, Ukraine, where likewise the official rhetoric is about press freedom. Mm. But it's a great question. I mean, I've often said that there are, I think, six or seven American universities there in uh, Qatar. 
And if I'm the dean of uh, Texas A&M, I don't have any trouble explaining to you why I have an engineering school in a country that gets almost all of its revenues from natural gas. If I'm Georgetown, I have no problem explaining to you why I have a foreign service school in a country that punches above its weight in regional and international diplomacy. If I'm a journalism school, I've got a much longer explanation about why I have a journalism school in a country with no free press. Mm. So that's a discussion that you would have to have not just with me, but with people at my university who far outrank me. Craig, do you detect a desire for more press freedom or more political liberty amongst Mm -hmm. young Qataris or even just Qataris that you engage with uh, outside your workplace? I can't say that I do. In fact, uh, one of the assignments I will often do is, as I mentioned, the, the media law dates to 1979. So a perfectly reasonable assignment for a media law class would be to rewrite it. Qatar says that its uh, 2030 plan is based on four industries that are all roughly based on expression. That's sports, media, education, and art. And so it seems like a reasonable thing to rewrite this law. And I'm always surprised that many of my Qatari students, when they rewrite the law, I can't always say exactly what their judgments are, but they often keep the most pernicious aspects right. of the law, the licensing requirements, the criminal provisions for things like libel. And this is, I alluded to likewise in my uh, foreign policy article. The explanation I will get is this is part of uh, our culture and tradition. And I would simply push back and say, no, it's what the British gave you and you've doubled down on it. They're not unique, not, certainly not in the Gulf and not in the Arab world. We've heard from organisations like the International Labour Organisation that there has been Mm -hmm. significant legal reform and significant changes of practices on the ground in terms of Mm -hmm. labour relations in Qatar. Is that something that, as someone living there, you can see happening as well? No. Yes, there have been significant uh, legal reforms. And there's no evidence that any of them have really been given full effect. You can't report on them. It's not like you can go down to the Ministry of Labor and demand to see labor statistics. I would encourage anyone who wants to see some of the effects of these forms to go to the Ministry of Labor website and look at its own monthly reporting on this, which is so spare as to be useless. So if you simply live in Doha and you travel around, migrant workers are everywhere. And if there has been material improvement in their lives, I know of no evidence of it. I certainly know no reporting of it. Given that very restrictive environment for domestic reporters in Qatar, I wonder if you could speak to us a little bit about what you feel the organisation Al Jazeera has and hasn't achieved in terms Mm -hmm. of journalism, but also in terms of, I suppose, those soft power and cultural influence factors that we've also alluded to. Well, I can speak more to its journalism because I think of Al Jazeera as, of course, a world-class news organization. Mm. And it covers the so-called global south in a way that the news organizations I'm most familiar with, for example, the BBC or CNN, do not and cannot. Mm. They they cover the Middle East uh, with a different eye. It's also true that like every news organization there, Al Jazeera, the television network, does almost zero domestic news coverage. Uh, You recall that during the three-year blockade of Qatar by the Emiratis and the Saudis, one of the demands was to close Al Jazeera. Many rulers in the Arab world don't like Al Jazeera because they turn a thoughtful, critical eye on corruption and governance issues throughout the region, just not on themselves. The other thing about the television network is that most of the folks who work there are expats like me. They're Brits, they're Australians, they're French, uh, they're from all over the place. And 
many of my students will go to work there. Again, I think it's an excellent news organization that regrettably doesn't cover the world outside its front door. Craig Lemay, how do you view the way that Qatar is perceived from outside the country these days? Yeah, well, it's perceived in so many different ways. I've been following, as others probably have, the news coverage day in, day out during the COP. And it's just more of what has been going on for many years. Some of it is just hysterical. The British tabloids are always good for a riotously wrong story. There has been reporting by reputable news organizations. As you know, I singled out The Guardian uh, in my piece for a story it did in 2021, which claimed that 6,500 workers had died in construction events around the World Cup. And not only is that number probably not correct, but even if it were, and of course, every death is horrible, in terms of actuarial numbers, that's normal. Uh, you got 1.5 million immigrants over 10 years. That's a normal death rate. It's mm-hmm. for a country like United States or Germany. So the reporting could be better. But my argument has been for years that if you don't cover your own country critically and thoughtfully, other people will, and they might not be so critical or thoughtful. Well, Craig LeMay, thank you for your uh, critical and thoughtful reflections on living and working in Qatar for the Roundtable. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all our guests on the Roundtable today, Umbarak Altani, Nicole Johnson and Craig LeMay. And that's it for the Roundtable this week. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Julian Morrow. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.